This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation. International politics is going through a period of flux and uncertainty. Depending on your theoretical orientation, we are either moving towards a multipolar world order where different values can coexist, or we are entering a new Cold War between the United States and China. All powers, great, middle, and small, are trying to grapple with this changing dynamics. Australia is arguably symbolic of this predicament. Canberra soft-pedaled the Quad and the United States' efforts to contain China during the late 2000s to accommodate Chinese concerns. It has now decided to push back Chinese coercion. Australia's experience is not an exception. India also witnessed a similar turn in its relations with China over the last decade. India and Australia are part of the revitalized Quad and their overarching aim remains to counterbalance China. At the Quad Foreign Ministers Summit in Melbourne earlier this month, India's External Affairs Minister Subramanian Jaisangar stated that the India-Australia relations have changed profoundly over the last decade. To explore the challenges of balancing China from Australia's perspective and discuss the geopolitics of the Indo-Pacific and Indo-Australia, India-Australia ties, I have with me Professor Ian Hall. Professor Hall is with the School of Government and International Relations at the Griffith University in Australia. is the author of the book, Modi and the Reinvention of Indian Foreign Policy. Welcome to the National Security Conversation, Dr. Ian Hall. It's very good to be here. Very good to see you again. Thank you. And, you know, let me let me begin with um, what happened recently at the at the Quad Foreign Ministers uh, meeting in Melbourne earlier this month. India's External Affairs Minister Dr. Jay Shankar said that India-Australia relations changed profoundly over the last decade. In your opinion, Dr. Hall, what is responsible for this profound turn of events, as he puts it? Well, look, I think I mean he's absolutely right. They have changed very profoundly over a decade. Um, I think the catalyst for that change, and I choose the word catalyst very deliberately, is, is China. It's not that China has been necessarily responsible for this or that China's assertiveness has been responsible. What it's done is it, it's helped Australia and India to speak to each other much more substantively about a range of different issues. So I think that the really it's not as though um, China's assertiveness has uh, is the only factor in all of this. I think both sides have now found it. They've got a lot to talk about and a lot to work together about. Uh, and that's been a very kind of positive development. And the other thing we've got to observe in all of this too is the diaspora, uh, the population of people of Indian origin in Australia has expanded dramatically since the year 2000. Uh, and that's also bringing the two countries together. So it numbers a little less than a million, around 800,000 now, I think. Uh, and making a very significant and very prominent contribution to Australian society. Look, I think there's a, there's a number of other factors there as well. With both democracies, we both uh, have English-speaking elites. Uh, we both uh, share a, a kind of somewhat problematic 
colonial history. Um, so there's a number of things there that would bring us together anyway, naturally, to have a conversation. On the trade side of things and on the economic side of things, Australia has always looked to India as a potential rising trading partner, investment partner. Um, so it's always on the lookout as a, as a trading country for economic opportunity. Uh, and India maybe hasn't quite delivered in the same way as maybe Japan did in the past, Korea, China, obviously, as well. But Australia is still looking to that development in the future. Right. You know, let's let's come to the whole Indo-Pacific question a bit. Um, how has the Australian view of or the vision for the Indo-Pacific evolved over the last one decade? Um, you know, earlier it seemed to sort of eschew the balance of power politics you know, and sort of reach some kind of an understanding with China um, you know, during most of the previous decade, as it were. Uh, there seems to be a a clear change in Australia's strategy today. What, in your opinion, has prompted this shift in Australian strategy? And if I may add uh, another question to that, what had prevented Canberra from calling the China challenge for what it was earlier? Look, I think this, that Australia's elite, from the 1970s onwards, and certainly after Deng Xiaoping, Deng Xiaoping came to power in, in 78, I think believed that China could evolve in a number of different directions. It was a shock administered by, by Tiananmen Square, obviously. But China, in terms of its relations with its uh, periphery, with the countries around it, it settled a number of territorial disputes in the 80s and 90s, including with the Russians, for example. It was evolving in an uncertain direction. And Australian policymakers, like a lot of Western policymakers, hoped that China, as it got richer, would liberalise politically as well as economically. I think that that... Um, illusion perhaps has really shattered now and it the change comes around the global financial crisis in the late 2000s when China starts to grow much more assertive in its foreign and strategic policy where we see for example uh, that nine dash, nine dash line map in the South China Sea going to the United Nations um, and we see the ramping up of its military modernization program and really, as a result of that, you can see the Australian elite starting to change its position on China uh, and this split emerging between the business community, uh, which has, has profited from China's rise and from what we've been able to export to China in terms of raw materials, and the security elite, which is now looking at China uh, with a lot more concern than it was in the past. So in other words, there was a certain expectation in Australia and probably even in the West in general that, uh, you know, China would eventually become a uh, modern liberal state, but that hasn't really happened. Um, and therefore, there is a recognition in the West in general and in Australia about the China challenge as it were. Now, I mean, that's, that's a sort of uh, historical account of things, uh, perhaps. But what, in your opinion, are some of the uh, watershed events that may have led to this metanoia in, in Canberra. Yeah, so look, I mean, I mentioned the South China Sea incidents around 2008, eight, nine, uh, and then we've, we've seen a kind of ramping up of maritime militia incidents, um, disputes with the Philippines, for example, uh, a lot of increasing Coast Guard and military activity in the East China Sea. And then, of course, Xi Jinping comes to power in 2013. And he rapidly establishes himself as a very different kind of leader to the one that, ones that we've seen in the past. That the kind of the long Deng Xiaoping era, which runs right the way up until that point, really starts to to change. Then 
uh, as we see the anti-corruption campaign, repression in, in within China ramping up and so on. So you go back to 2013, and 2013 is a very, very important um, turning point. Soon after that, we start to see evidence of um, alleged Chinese interference in Australian politics uh, through the influencing of politicians and donations uh, and influence over universities and public institutions. That then, I think, feeds this 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 broader skepticism and this shift to a more assertive policy on the on Canberra's part. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And if I could uh, sort of push you a little further on that um, aspect of the Chinese interference in Australia, I think um, you know, given the fact that uh, China does that uh, even in uh, India's neighborhood, in in other smaller powers. Um, it would be instructive for us to sort of understand the mechanics of that, if you could sort of illustrate a little more about what you just said for our viewers and non-users. So there's two aspects to this. So all countries obviously uh, try to gain influence. And influence is fine if your diplomats are out there speaking to politicians, speaking to academics like us, speaking to think tankers, business people, so on and so forth, and trying to put a good image across of your own country. Where it crosses the line into interference is where we see things like um, donations going to political campaigns of politicians, and those politicians then being persuaded to take stands which which run counter to government or to try and influence party policy. Um, and we saw that with um, with a particular politician, Senator Sam Dastiari, uh, who took a very different line on the South China Sea. Uh, which was very similar to Beijing's line, to the government and also to the Australian Labour Party. And the allegation there was that he was doing that because he was strongly influenced by, by a Chinese business person. So, so, that's, so there, this is uh, much more around interference. Now, you know, we, the problem here in Australia is that um, we're not particularly transparent about campaign donations, about political campaign donations. And it is actually possible to get around some of the rules concerning foreign donations and so on. So that's just one example. We saw a whole bunch of other things as well. Uh, a lot of cyber intrusions into universities, computers, gathering information. We even saw the prime minister's email account hacked at one point, allegedly again mm. by Chinese hackers. So a number of things that were trying to shift political debate and, and arguably intimidate uh, in, in Australia that we didn't think were were reasonable. Right. I, I, I got the China part uh, quite, quite clear in my head now. Now, let us sort of try and understand the um, Australian policy towards Indo-Pacific, uh, you know, in, in, in a little more detail. Um, you know, in your opinion, how does Australia's approach to the Indo-Pacific differ from that of great powers like the United States uh, on the one hand and regional powers like India and Japan uh, on the other, and also perhaps ASEAN at large? Uh, how is Australia's policy different from all of these powers as well? Look, I mean, that's a very difficult answer to question, uh, question to answer because these concepts are deliberately flexible so that India can have a conception of the Indo-Pacific that stretches a little bit further than ours. Japan similarly can have one that stretches in the other direction and so on. Um, I think the, the most obvious difference is really in terms of scale. So we do recognize that there is emerging a kind of integrated strategic space. And that's happening because of what China is doing uh, in terms of the way the influence is extending beyond its own borders in Eurasia, through the Indian Ocean region, into the Pacific, into Southeast Asia. 
It's been created by the Belt and Road Initiative, obviously as well, a really good example that's creating this integrated Indo-Pacific space as opposed to the East Asian integrated space that we saw prior to that. But Australia's primary concerns lie within Southeast Asia, within uh, the this area of the Indian Ocean that's proximate to, to Australia and our territories, and to the Southwest Pacific, to the Pacific Island states. So our, although we have a kind of a broad understanding of the Indo-Pacific as that bigger strategic space, our primary interests lie much closer to home in terms of the, particularly the security of the Indonesian archipelago and of the South China Sea, particularly the, the integrity of the Pacific Island states, and then also the security of that Indian Ocean area, where I think we're going to have to work and we are working much more closely with India uh, to ensure that that space is secure and safe. Um, particularly from intrusion from other powers, including China. Interesting. Let's, let's sort of look specifically at the Quad question now. Um, you know, over the years, the um, Quad has evolved, uh, but even then, there seems to be a certain unwillingness to um, call it for what it really is, in my opinion. It, it's, an, it's a coalition of like-minded states aimed at addressing the China challenge. Um, the Quad agenda remains predominantly non-military in nature. Do you think that kind of an approach to Quad detracts from its primary goal of, say, counterbalance in China? So I don't think that's too much of an issue, actually. And here I might be taking a slightly different line to some of my American colleagues, and even some of my Australian colleagues, and certainly some of my Japanese colleagues. So a line that's more that's closer to India's, actually. The China challenge is multifaceted. It's not just a military challenge. It's also about um, setting standards in cyberspace. It's about infrastructure. It's about supply chains. It's about uh, access to critical minerals and processing. It's, a, it's about uh, um, semiconductors. It's a whole range of different things like that. Uh, and so it involves, it has to involve this a much broader focus than just a purely military one. Um, so, um, the, and then the second component to all of this is, I'm not actually convinced that we need to have an alliance like NATO. NATO is needed to defend a relatively small space in, in, in Western Europe. What we're talking about here around China's borders is a very large space, but also one in which there are major powers like Japan, like India, that have sizable military capabilities already. So the primary objective here has got to be to make those capabilities more robust, make their capacity to manage any potential Chinese aggression more robust. But I don't think we really imagine that the Indian Navy is going to sail into the East China Sea and defend the islands of Japan. And similarly, we're not going to deploy troops on the line of actual control. We don't really need that. Um, what we do need is we need to be able to bolster our internal balancing, get our own military capabilities uh, up to scratch and strong enough to manage all of this in our own areas of responsibility. And then we need to cooperate across that broader range of challenges that I've outlined, whether it's supply chains and cyber and vaccines, uh, health security, all those other things, and delivering you know public goods that everyone needs in the region, whether that's the Pacific, Southeast Asia, and so on. Okay, so in other words, you don't think um, that uh, AUKUS deal, the new AUKUS deal, um, has probably taken some steam out of the uh, Quad arrangement, as it were. Quad, in your opinion, has a certain role to play and is playing it quite well. AUKUS has a different role to play. Is that how you put how you would put it? Look, I don't. I think they're complementary. 
Um, and I know that's the standard government line, but I think it's true. The reality is here that, you know, that, that we can't put together a nuclear submarine deal between Japan and India. India is too dependent on Russian nuclear technology uh, as things stand. Um, it's also extremely difficult for the Americans to share that technology with anyone. And we'll see whether they actually do share it and what they share with Australia uh, down the line. Um, I think they are very much complementary, though. They're about trying to address a kind of critical gap in Australia's capabilities, and that is to the benefit of, of everyone. If Australia is better able to uh, monitor, to police if necessary, to defend that Indonesian archipelago in the Eastern Indian Ocean uh, with nuclear-powered submarines, then that frees up India to do other things in its own uh, backyard in the Indian Ocean, for example. So I think these things are, are pretty complementary. That doesn't exclude, though, us doing things together. And I think AUKUS, in a way, is useful because what it does is it sets a standard and says, we're going to cooperate on, on a number of very highly sensitive, very highly advanced technologies, because this is a technology accelerator beyond the submarines. Um, others in the region, if you want to be involved in this, if you want to talk about this, if you want to cooperate, we can work on that as well in parallel. Uh, and we've already seen, we're seeing that. I mean, the India-Australia cyber partnership is is right is, is starting, but it's already had some significant achievements. And we're now talking to each other about substantive issues that five years ago were just, there was they weren't in the conversation at all. So I think that standard setting is helpful. Uh, it's going to allow other things to, to flourish in the region. Right, you know, let's try and let's try and understand the um, question of Quad and Indo-Pacific in the larger context of global geopolitics. Right, I mean, while the U.S. has pivoted to Asia, the balance of power, the uh, the balance of power politics has resurfaced in in, in Europe uh, as Russia and, and the West are in confrontation over, over, over Ukraine. To what extent do you think that the geopolitics of Europe uh, and larger Eurasia, as it were? will impinge on the geopolitics of uh, the Indo-Pacific? I think they're going to impinge in, in lots of different ways. And, and we often focus on the distraction that this might cause in Washington. And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's reasonable. There's no doubt that a significant amount of presidential time, of Anthony Blinken's time, and so on and so on, is being taken up with this Russia question, the Ukraine question. I think there are other ramifications too. It just highlights some of the they're not tensions, but there are issues there in the various relationships that we have with Russia. Australia has very few. Japan has a vexed relationship. India has a much closer defense partnership with Russia. And, um, and that may become a problem which we're going to have to focus on diplomatically in a way that it wasn't arguably uh, a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. We also have an issue here in, what, in which we know that Beijing is watching the crisis in Ukraine very, very carefully. Um, it is going to watch what happens in terms of what it might possibly be able to do in, in, uh, regarding Taiwan. And, you know, if, if it's the case that this is all that what uh, Vladimir Putin is doing with Ukraine is all a big bluff and a big bluster and intended to coerce Ukraine without really fighting a shot or sending his troops in, then that's going to be of real concern to, to Beijing because Beijing would love to be able to get itself into a position where without firing a shot, it could retain 
it could bring Taiwan back into the fold as far as they can consider it. So, so Beijing is learning lessons. And then there's the vexed question of the relationship between China and Russia and pushing the two of them together, uh, as it were. Um, I'm not sure, however, that you can split them apart. I think the relationship is very close for a variety of reasons. But uh, there is obviously concern that the more that Russia is, 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 if you like, contained, the more it will look eastwards for support. Dr. Hall, do you think India's close relationship with uh, the Russian Federation will eventually at some point of time complicate um, the Indo-Pacific, uh, the, the emerging geopolitics of the Indo-Pacific and the and the Quad, as it were. I'm, I'm, you know, if, if you sort of uh, uh, look at what is happening today, and you are a scholar of India, you've written uh, quite a lot of very, very important literature on India. The Americans haven't yet, you know, told the Indians, listen, we are not very happy with uh, the the uh, relationship that you have with, with Russia. I think so far, I think there seems to be an acceptance that India needs Russia. But will there be a time when the when the red line is crossed and the Americans will tell India we are not too happy with the kind of close partnership that you have with Russia? Put differently, will the India-Russia relationship complicate uh, India's role in the Indo-Pacific and in the Quad? So look, I think it does complicate the issue, but those complications can be managed. There's a strong appreciation in Washington, and I don't just mean in the State Department or in the Pentagon, but also in Congress and in the White House, that India needs Russian arms uh, for in a variety of different areas, including some really sensitive ones like in nuclear submarine technology. There's a, there is a recognition that Russia is a, it produces reasonably high quality arms and that you can't get them and that India can't uh, access them at a reasonable price with the kind of technology sharing that it would like uh, without uh, going to Russia. So, and we want, after all, a strong India, strong economically, uh, strong militarily, so that it can defend itself and its interests. So that requires compromises. And I think you can see this with the S-400 issue, the air defense system. Um, technically, India should be subject to sanctions by the United States for, for because for buying that system with the CATSA sanctions. And I know that's a huge issue in, in India. My personal view is, and I don't have any special knowledge here of what's going on in Washington, is that the Americans will continue to, as we say here, kick the can down the road on that uh, and not impose sanctions and just leave the issue open, um, partly because it has to maintain the credibility of the sanctioned regime, but also, but primarily because it doesn't really want to punish India. Um, I know there's also a technical dimension to this and so on. I think in the end, uh, the US knows that that is a relationship that will not be broken and cannot be broken. Um, there may be US arms firms that would love to break it, um, but that has to happen over time and it has to happen when India wants to make the choice. Uh, it's not really a choice that others can make for it. Right, let me stretch that question a little further. Um, does it make sense for India and its partners, including the United States at some point of time, to see that Russians have a larger role to play in the Indo-Pacific, in the um, Asia-Pacific region, as they would call it? You know, they have not sort of bought into 
Uh, the Indo-Pacific narrative, as it were, they're quite opposed to Quad. Um, but in future, if things sort of uh, cool down between the United States um, and Russia, um, would it be useful to start thinking about the possibility of inviting Russia into the larger uh, narrative and scheme of the Indo-Pacific as it were, in order, of course, to sort of, uh, um, you know, um, let's say, let's say, counterbalance the Chinese overbearance as it were. I think the issue with Russia, I mean, I am reasonably skeptical of the idea that um, that Russia could be peeled away from China in some way and encouraged to at least be a little more neutral, if not to potentially balance China in, in some sense. I'm skeptical because I think Russia is, is now locked into a pretty interdependent relationship economically in terms of, uh, in terms of hydrocarbon supply into China. Uh, and I don't think that's going to be broken because there are just there are too many good reasons to maintain that relationship. Um, so I think, and I think the other issue that we've got to, to get at here is, you know, what is the source of the current instability uh, what is the source of the current assertiveness on the part of the of Putin's government? And I think that really boils down to, to Russian domestic politics uh, and to the effects of sanctions and to the fact that the Putin government is really very concerned about any country on its periphery effectively democratizing, going through a successful color revolution, uh, and therefore kind of in a way showing up the Russian government and offering an alternative form of government uh, to, to dissidents and opposition forces within Russia. And so I think that it's very hard to know how to manage this problem. I don't think that giving up substantial concessions is going to, is going to really change the situation greatly. Um, and I think even if concessions are made, it's hard to know whether the, the current government would, would stick to them and would honor those agreements. Um, given the pattern of behaviour that we've seen over the last um, six, eight years or so. Well, all right. I think you, you, you partly answered my next question, but let me ask you that uh, nevertheless for, for, for the sake of clarity. Um, how do you sort of as a scholar view the crisis over Ukraine? What are the implications uh, of this crisis for global security order? Um, how do you assess the competing points between those who argue that uh, accommodating the Russian interests might help weaken the Russia-China nexus and on the other hand those who perceive that the Russian influence, Russian alliance with China is a foregone conclusion beyond the help or influence of the uh, approach from the West. So I think my position kind of sits a little bit beyond both of those. I think my, my position is essentially okay. To make concessions or try, try and accommodate Russia would be reasonable, provided that we can make reason, a reasonable accommodation. But I think an accommodation that involves um, effectively making, uh, constraining Ukraine's sovereignty and autonomy would be a direct challenge to some pretty fundamental rules in international politics. So that's a very difficult thing to, to do. I think allowing uh, a country to change the status quo by force is obviously an even bigger transgression of the basic rules we have in international politics. So it's very difficult to know what the way out of this um, might be. I also think that the, the strength of the alliance between um, the understanding, if you like, between Russia and China, I think it's very transactional. 
I think it's quite contingent. I think it's quite dependent on uh, Russian economic interests aligning with China's economic interests. I don't believe actually that they have substantial ideological agreement. I also don't think they regard each other as, as peers uh, and respect each other as peers. I know that's a very difficult kind of topic to get into, but I think China sees Russia as a declining power, uh, yeah. notwithstanding its recent resurgence. And I don't think that, and I think China, like it is with so many other relationships, is simply waiting for it to get into a stronger position and then it can dictate terms. Um, and it thinks, China thinks, that it will be in a stronger position. And so the terms of the agreement will get better and better and better um, for it. I think Russia also knows that. And Russia is concerned about that. And there is an element of fear, in other words, in Moscow about, about Beijing's intentions as well. And then in the end, that's going to not necessarily push the two of them apart, but it's going to keep, keep this on a pretty transactional, pretty contingent basis. Right, you know, one, one, one or two final questions, Ian. And, and one is about, the first one is about um, Chinese economic engagement of the region. The region in general is deeply into with the Chinese economy as it were. Now this interconnectedness of the region's economy and that of China, will it moderate China's behavior going forward? Or is that going to make China more aggressive uh, in the years to come? What's your sort of prediction? So I actually think we've got some good evidence for that already. That China has already has been deeply economically interdependent with the United States and financially uh, interdependent with the United States for a good 20 years now. It's also been, you know, it has, it's not just interdependence with a country like Australia, it's actually dependent on Australia's uh, raw materials. It needs our iron ore, our coal. It can't get them easily anywhere else. And that does, does put some limits on the kinds of things that it might try to do to Australia. And it's interesting that if we look at the evidence of the, the trade tensions between Australia and, in, uh, and China over the last two years or so, China has moved to, uh, uh, to punish areas like wine, like oysters, these kinds of things where uh, they don't really strategically matter all that much, but they inflict some damage on, on a particular industry that, that will be badly hurt by this. Um, but they haven't affected the, the, the substantial bit of the economic relationship, which is iron ore and coal. Um, and, and that's because it is dependent. Now, that's, a, that's interesting, I think. The worrying thing for me is not the interdependence, it's actually the, the attempt by China to try and disengage from parts of the global economy and from parts of, of uh, unplug itself. So uh, something like the industrial strategy made in China 2025, which the Chinese introduced a, a little while ago, is about trying to create self-sufficiency in areas like semiconductors uh, and in high technology. That's really worrying because if they can obtain self-sufficiency in those areas, that obviously gives them greater autonomy. And, and this is, this, these are arguments, these are policies that, that India knows very, very well. Um, entirely reasonably, post-colonial India aimed for economic autonomy because it, it, it believed quite rightly, quite reasonably, that it could then have diplomatic and political autonomy. It, it, it wasn't going to be forced into alliances. It wasn't going to be pressured through uh, trade sanctions and things like mm -hmm. that. 
So what I think the worrying thing is actually that China is trying to is trying to uh, make itself less interdependent. And if it becomes less interdependent, if it's no longer you know interdependent with Japan, the United States, or whatever else, then it will give it higher levels of autonomy. Uh, others can't punish it with trade sanctions or, or, or that kind of coercion, and that gives it a freer hand to do what it wants on its own borders. And I think that's that's a real concern for us. Ian, I can't let you go without having you talk about your book, this fascinating book that you published last year, Modi and the Invention of Indian Foreign Policy. Has Modi reinvented India's foreign policy? Look, I think the government has tried to, in the sense that, and in the book I kind of set this out and say, they've invented a new language for Indian foreign policy and they've dispensed with the old language, not just of non-alignment, but even of the phrase strategic autonomy, which kind of replaced non-alignment in the in the 2000s. Uh, and instead we've got this, this very different kind of language for describing what, what India is doing. I think too, uh, you know, I wrote that book back in 2018, so things have changed significantly since then. I think in hindsight, I would emphasize a little bit more just how much investment and how much development of the US-India relationship has happened under the Modi government. Um, I would emphasize as well that I think India has now moved from what Rajesh Rajagopalan, who you know very well, called evasive balancing of China. I think it's becoming more overt, much less evasive. I think it's becoming much clearer that India uh, is just not is not going to hide the fact that it recognizes China as a major challenge and that it needs to push back, draw lines, and so on. I think we've seen that happen under this government uh, as well. Um, and so, in the book, I kind of I argued. I got to the end and said, well, at the end of Modi 1.0, um, not much in the basic settings had changed. There was a change of emphasis, a change of language. I think now, looking back over what's happened over the last couple of years, uh, I wasn't necessarily wrong at that point, but I think things have changed much more than they did in the first term of government. Um, so if someone wanted to give me a contract to write a second edition, that, that would be my pitch. <laughs> let's hope that happens. Uh, that's going to be uh, on my reading list for my students on India's foreign policy. Fascinating insights. Thank you so much for joining this conversation, Dr. Ian Hall. Wonderful talking to you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.